welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. There's two readings this morning, one from Ezra and one from Nehemiah. Firstly, Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, Everyone whose heart had been moved, whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God, Cyrus, king of Persia, had brought them by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And now from Nehemiah, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 8. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah and with some other men, And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night before your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. 
I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Thank you very much, Peter. Hey, my name is Mark Lilly and uh, I serve as the pastor at Forestdale and it's great to be with you this morning. It was awesome to hear John and Elaine share something of the seniors ministry, although John, I was a little bit troubled given I'm turning 50 this year, when you proposed, when you proposed changing the name of seniors to uh, 50 somethings, because I felt pretty safe up until this point, but I had a minor panic attack sitting over there, but uh, I've got no plans to start coming along to seniors anytime soon. We have some seniors at Forestdale and they are, they're the backbone of the church in many ways. The wisdom that they bring, the way they serve in the community, the way they love people, the way they come around people is just absolutely fantastic. So it's great to hear something of what the seniors are doing in, in our community. Today we're starting a new series and the series is on um, Ezra, Nehemiah and the series will run for the next four weeks and I'm really looking forward to this series. It's the books of Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah are books that talk lots about God bringing hope, about God bringing renewal and restoration to his people. They talk about a community of people coming around a common vision together that God has given them and pursuing that vision together. So I'm really excited about this series just in case you're wondering why we're looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together as part of the same series. They were originally one book. I believe it was our English Bibles where they were separated into two books, but they were originally apparently written as one book, which is why we're doing them in the same series. And there's lots of overlap and continuity of themes and so forth. But before we look a little bit closer at today's passages, I just want to give you a really quick rundown on some of the, the big building blocks in Israel's history, just so that we have a little bit of context for the storyline that will sort of unfold over the coming weeks. So you're going to have to hang on because I'm going to move pretty quickly through some stuff and, and just touch briefly, briefly on some major 
historical events that will perhaps be of some importance as we move through the story over the next few weeks. Way back in the book of Genesis, we read about a group of about 70 people and this group of 70 people experienced famine in their land and so they went to Egypt. Joseph was in Egypt and he invited his family to come and take refuge in Egypt. They took refuge in Egypt, which at the time was a great thing. And this 70 people, they grew and they grew over hundreds of years. They became a large and very formidable nation. So much so that the the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites because they saw them as as something of a threat to to their own welfare. So they enslaved the Israelites. The Israelites then were delivered from Egypt, as we know, under, under the leadership of Moses. They went on this exodus and, and they were moving towards the land that God had promised them. But they, they had to spend 40 years in the desert because they were a stubborn-hearted people, a rebellious people. So they, they stayed in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years. They eventually moved into this land that God had given them. And and we read about conquests and all sorts of wonderful stuff of God giving them this amazing land he's promised to them. And, And then they asked for a king. So God gave them a king and David was their first king. And David was an amazing king. He was a king who was a man after God's own heart. And Israel under David's leadership, they had a golden era. They had a golden era. But after David, they had lots and lots of really, really bad, really ungodly kings. And and the nation started to get divided. And the nation divided itself into two kingdoms. There was a northern and a southern kingdom. In 721 BC, the northern kingdom was wiped out by Assyria. And the southern kingdom kept going. They fared a little bit better. They had they had some some kings who were a little bit more godly, and the, and and the, the southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer. And then in five eighty six, in five eighty six BC, the southern kingdom fell as well. Babylon was the rising superpower, and they invaded Jerusalem, and they completely obliterated Jerusalem. They removed the vast majority of Israelites into slavery. In Babylon, they had lost the land and their temple was completely destroyed. So in 586, Israel's completely decimated. They've lost the land that God has brought, had brought them into and the temple lay in ruins. The Israelites had a very, very deep connection with their land because it was something that God had promised to them through Abraham. God had promised to give them this special land and so it was central, central to the Israelites. But they consistently rebelled against God and so God judged them and took the land away from them. And the temple, it was also something of incredible significance for the people of Israel. The temple was the place where they met with God. It was the place where they came and they offered sacrifice. It was the place where God dwelt And they would come and meet with God in his temple and offer him worship. Both of these things, land and temple, land and temple, they gave the people of Israel a sense of purpose. They gave them a sense of identity as God's chosen people. And now it had been lost. Eventually, Babylon's time as the world's superpower expired, 
and Persia was, was, the, was the new rising superpower, and they replaced Babylon. Babylon didn't put up much of a fight because the nation had kind of just petered out to some extent, and Persia just moved in. They just moved in to Babylon. So the Israelites found themselves in Babylon, but under Persian rule. So all of the events that we read about in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah over the, over the coming weeks took place under the rule of the Persian Empire. But even though, even though they were stuck in exile, even though they were in bondage in this nation, all hope wasn't lost. All hope was not lost. You see, because God had promised God had promised consistently through his prophets that he would restore them. It was God himself who booted the Israelites out of the promised land because of judgment, because they had hard hearts, because they were a rebellious people. But God promised to restore them to that land that he'd taken away from them. He promised them another exodus. He promised them renewal and restoration. I just want to read this prophecy from Jeremiah. It's just a wonderful, a wonderful prophecy that speaks about and foretells this restoration that's coming their way. If you want to follow along, it's in Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. Many of you will be familiar with this prophecy, the prophecy that was given to the people who were in exile. And it says this, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about God renewing. They're about God bringing restoration to a people who had strayed way off course. But God's bringing them back. There's a return. They get to return to their land. They get to rebuild their temple. They get to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the gates because God's spirit is at work. But they don't get everything right. The book's kind of left a little bit open-ended and, and, and parts of it look a bit strange. And that's because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah continue to point forward. God is not yet finished with his people. God is not yet finished. So the books continue to look forward to an even greater day of renewal, to an even more magnificent day of restoration that God will bring one day. And we'll touch on something of that over the coming weeks. So you'll have to come back next week and hear the next instalment. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of a a bit of a whirlwind visit, but um, hopefully that gives you some context because some of, those, some of those themes are really important for us as we move forward. So coming to today's passages, firstly to Ezra. 
In chapter 1, we read about God moving and stirring Cyrus's heart. Cyrus was the king of Persia. Now, Persia was a pagan nation. And, and as a pagan nation, Cyrus, as, as their king, worshipped all sorts of gods, all sorts of different gods. But it was the God of Israel. It was the one true God that actually stirred Cyrus's heart. He was the one who captivated this pagan king's heart. And Cyrus actually responded. He responds by issuing this written proclamation or a decree. And in verse 2, Cyrus even goes so far to utter these words. The God of heaven has appointed me. The God of heaven has appointed me, Cyrus, to build a temple for him in Jerusalem. That's the way Cyrus saw it. God had chosen him, has singled him out to rebuild this temple that had been destroyed in Jerusalem. And Cyrus goes on in this proclamation and he then gives permission for all of the Jews, for all of the Israelites to return home back to Jerusalem and rebuild God's dwelling place. Now, not everybody wanted to leave, so that there was a first wave that returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Some people had become quite accustomed to life in Babylon and they had become comfortable and settled. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But it just seems really bizarre that, that a pagan king, a pagan king, one who's not following Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, he's the one who simply allows them to leave. Remember in, in the, the initial exodus, God's struggling with, with the Egyptian pharaoh and he's visiting plague after plague after plague trying to get Pharaoh to let his people go. Cyrus just responds. God stirs Cyrus's heart and Cyrus responds positively. But it gets even better. It gets even better than Cyrus simply letting God's people return to the promised land. Cyrus actually puts his money where his mouth is and he funds the project. He gives them gold and silver and all sorts of other wealth from his own royal treasury. The Israelites had lost all of their wealth during the Babylonian captivity. And they are exiles living in a land with nothing much of value. They don't have the financial capacity. They don't have the financial resources to rebuild the temple that God is stirring them to rebuild. But God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises and his resources are boundless. God knew exactly what they needed and he supplied everything to complete the work that he called them to. And he used a foreign king to do it. And one of the best things I love about this is Cyrus actually returns to Israel the plunder that had been stolen from the nation of Israel by King Nebuchadnezzar. There's this wonderful picture of restoration of God restoring and giving back to them that which had been stolen during the Babylonian invasion then in verse 6 God begins to stir more hearts God starts to stir the hearts of the Israelites he started with Cyrus he started with a pagan king I find that really unusual but then he starts to stir the hearts of his people to return to Israel 
God's Spirit is at work. In, we read a, a big long list in, in the subsequent chapter of thousands of people, thousands of men and women. God is stirring their hearts. He's moving them, pointing them back towards this vision to return and build his temple. God had given this nation a vision of what it meant for them to be his special worshipping community. And the vision included them returning to their land. The vision included them rebuilding the temple. And God's stirring their hearts for this vision, stirring them to respond, stirring them and inviting them to participate in his vision for worship. And people respond. Many of them respond. The prophecies that promised Israel restoration are now finally being fulfilled. And it was happening because of a pagan king. God keeps his word. God promised that they would be returned to their land, that the temple would be rebuilt, that the walls would be reinstated, that God would bring restoration and renewal to his people. And he delivers on his promise. What had seemed totally and utterly impossible to this tiny little group of people, to this small remnant of people, became a reality because God was on the move. And he invited them to participate and to be a part of it and to join in his vision. We're going to now move over a few pages, if you're in a paper Bible, to the book of Nehemiah. It had been about 13 years since the first group of people had returned back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asks Hanani, mate, how are they going? How is the first wave of Israelites who have returned to Israel going? Are they making good progress? I'm sure he asked that question with a real sense of expectation and anticipation. But unfortunately, things weren't going well, so the report wasn't good. The walls of Jerusalem are still in total disrepair. The gates have been burned and have been completely destroyed. The city of Jerusalem at that point is completely exposed. It's defenseless and open to enemy invasion. And that was enough to completely undo Nehemiah at that point. He was a passionate man. And he's overcome by this, this bad news that he receives from Hanani. He feels a deep sense of sorrow and he sits down and he cries. He cries. And he's not just crying about some walls that have been broken down or gates that have been torched. He's crying because he's frustrated. He's frustrated by the lack, by the lack of... Um, by the lack of willingness of these people to participate in the vision that God has called them to. He's disheartened by the lack of progress that's been made by his brothers and sisters who have returned to Jerusalem. And so he cries. He cries. And he prays. And he fasts. He's a man who's completely undone at that point, And he cries out to God. And in his, in his prayer, in his prayer, he repents. He repents for his own sin and the things that he might have done 
to prevent progress from being made. He repents for the sins of the nation of Israel that may have prevented in some way progress from being made in the reconstruction of Jerusalem. But he's not a man who prays without hope. He's a man who prays with confidence. He talks in his prayer about God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness. This is a God who never abandons his people. He talks in that prayer about his God's faithfulness and how his God has held his people and how he's journeyed with this people and of his deep love for this people. So he's not a man who's praying without hope, but he's a man who's undone. He's distraught with the lack of progress. And at the end of chapter 1, we're told that Nehemiah happens to be, he just happens to be, the king's cupbearer. Now, the king's cupbearer was actually a pretty important position. The king whose cup he was bearing at this time was no longer Cyrus. He's moved on. Artaxerxes is now the Persian king who's sitting on the throne and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. As the cupbearer, he was probably a really trusted individual, perhaps even a royal official who had some clout around the palace and he would have tasted every drink that that the king himself drank just in case somebody poisoned it just in case somebody poisoned it. And he must have been a man who was deeply trusted by the king himself because as the king's cupbearer, he too had opportunity to poison this pagan king's cup. So he's a man who is trusted. He's, he's got some official capacity, some clout, and he's got direct access to the king. A number of months go by and and Nehemiah is doing what he does every day. He's serving some wine to the king. And and on this particular day, the the king notices something a little bit different about Nehemiah. Perhaps up until that point, he'd kept his poker face. And he hadn't allowed that emotion that he was feeling to spill out. But in this particular occasion, the king notices something. He says, hey, Nehemiah, how are you going? You're looking a little bit sad. You're looking a little bit troubled. And the fact was, Nehemiah, months later, was still deeply troubled. He couldn't hide it any longer. And Nehemiah spent months praying by this stage, and he's seeking God, and and he finally gets his opportunity to do something. But in spite of all of his praying and fasting, up until this point, the Bible tells us that he was terrified. He's terrified. Probably for good reason. Most kings in this era tended to be tyrants. And so he finds himself in somewhat of a precarious position. Do I tell him? Do I not tell him? Will he fire me? Will he kill me? But he's a smart man. So he starts off by quickly reaffirming his loyalty for the king. He says, may the king live forever or long live the king. And then he shares something of what's troubling him, something of what he has on his heart. And he tells the king how his homeland lays in ruins. And strangely strangely enough, the king then asks him, 
What can I do to help you? What can I do to help you? God is again at work in a pagan king's heart. But before Nehemiah has an opportunity to present his shopping list to the king, he prays. He prays, even in the midst of a, an intense situation, which is, which is moving fairly quickly. This is a conversation he's having with a pagan king of Persia. But he instinctively, during the course of the conversation, cries out to God. And only then does he go on and ask for permission to return to Jerusalem. But he doesn't stop there. Nehemiah doesn't stop with simply asking the king to release him from being his cupbearer. He asks for building materials to construct the gates. In fact, he asks the king to provide him with timber from the king's very own forests. He asks for what the modern day equivalent for us might be travel visas. So he can travel from one region to the next without being held up. And just in case he has trouble getting through a particular region, he asks the king to provide him with some protection from the king's army. And the king says yes. The king says yes to each and every one of Nehemiah's request. Again, the pagan king is on board, supporting the reconstruction of God's dwelling place. He allows one of his closest officials to leave and he funds the project and he supports the project. God's spirit is again on the move. God's spirit is at work. But this time around, the catalyst, the catalyst for this move of God's spirit appears to have been months of intense prayer, fasting, repentance and lots of heartfelt tears. God responded to Nehemiah's gut-wrenching, heartfelt cries. And God's spirit starts to move again. There's a whole bunch of really practical takeaways that come out of these particular passages. I'm just going to try and briefly capture a few of those. So if you like to take notes or on your phone or, or, or write notes... I'm going to move pretty quickly, but I'm hoping that something, something from one of these particular applications captures your heart. So first, seize the opportunity. Seize the opportunity. Our theme for this year is growing deeper. The Babylonian exile provided them with a fairly unique opportunity for those who were willing to seize it, only for those that were willing to seize it. You see, when you're sitting in a place of captivity, when you're sitting in a place of bondage, that provides you with an opportunity to grow deeper in your faith because you're facing the prospect of struggling through thoughts that God has left me. I'm in a hopeless situation. And when you're placed in that kind of situation as, as the exiles were, you can respond in a few different ways. When you're in exile, you can respond in a few different ways. You can either lean into God and pursue him more deeply. 
you can run the other way and, and abandon God because you feel like he has abandoned you. Or perhaps you can just settle down and get comfortable in Babylon. I see that they are the three options. And each of us, we experience moments where we feel like we're perhaps in something of an exile, experiencing bondage in our lives, captivity. But the thing that we learn from the story of Israel is that God is continually at work. Even when his people were in exile, he was promising deliverance. Even while his people were in exile, he was stirring people's hearts. God is always at work. God is always at work. And God always brings exodus. God always brings hope. God always brings restoration and reconciliation. God always brings renewal. You may be in a situation where you feel like you're trapped in exile, stuck in bondage. Seize the opportunity. Seize the opportunity to grow deeper. Exodus is coming. Renewal is coming. Secondly, we all need renewal. We all need renewal doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, whether it's for five minutes or for 60 years, we all individually need renewal. As a church, we need ongoing renewal. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah speak about renewal. And that renewal comes solely through the work of God's Spirit. In Ezra, God's Spirit simply moves sovereignly. The book opens with God stirring Cyrus's heart. And then God stirs the hearts of the Israelites. God simply moves sovereignly. Then in Nehemiah, the situation appears to be a little bit different. Things work a little bit differently. God's spirit in Nehemiah moves in response, moves in response to Nehemiah's earnest prayers in response to his broken heart, in response to his tears, in response to his repentance, in response to his fasting. There's no formula as to how God works or when he'll work, but the thing that we can be certain of is that God does work. God does bring renewal through the work of his spirit. In both Ezra and Nehemiah, God's spirit moves. He changes hearts. The thing we need to be ready for is that renewal. We simply need to have hearts that are ready to respond, ready to respond to that renewal and to embrace it, to allow him to renew us and to be a part of whatever it is he's calling us into as his people. Third, God's vision leads to God's provision. That sounds a bit corny to me, but I asked Heather, does this sound corny? She said, no. God's vision leads to God's provision. I think the point's pretty clear, pretty self-explanatory. When God calls us to participate in his story, when God calls us to participate in something that he calls us to, he'll resource us to do that. He will provide. God provided kings that were willing to get on board and to support the rebuilding of Jerusalem. 
God provided gold and silver and timber and travel, travel visas. His spirit came and worked. And God provided all of these things that so, that, so that they could complete the work that God had called them to. And God actually exceeds their expectations. This was a small, impoverished group of people who were in exile. And their expectations must have been pretty low. But God exceeds their expectations. When God calls us to do something, he will resource us to do that. I know as, I, as, as I've reflected on my own life and my own experience, when God has asked me to do something, he's always provided the resources and the capacity to do that. Even though at times it hasn't come easily or quickly or within a time frame that I would like it to come, he comes through. I've spoken to people this week. I've spoken to some people this week who have shared stories of God providing for them in areas that he's called them to. If God calls you to something, he'll provide for you. As a church, as a church, we are called, we have been called to do many, many things. God will provide. He'll provide the people resources, the financial resources. He will provide in ways that we have not yet even thought of. Fourth, he's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who keeps his promises. Israel had been in captivity for years. They'd been in captivity for years. And in fact, a generation of Israelites had been born into slavery. But God delivered them according to his timetable. He promised the exodus, he promised restoration, and he made it happen. We, completely, we can completely trust God to do the things that he says that he will do. Because he's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who is sovereign. He's a God who's faithful. If God's promised something to you, hang on to it. Hang on to it. Hang on to the promises that God has given to you. Again, I was reflecting on my own life as I was preparing this week. And just things came flooding to my mind of how God has kept his promises. Some of those things I was thinking about have taken 20 years to come to pass. But God's faithful. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Fifth, allow yourself to be broken. Allow yourself to be broken. This is a tough one. Nehemiah was a man who was desperate for God to move. He was a man who was broken because God's work was being frustrated. I was trying to remember the last time that I was in tears because of the things that I see unfolding in the world. When, when was the last time I was in tears because of the frustration that I feel that God's kingdom is not progressing How desperate am I to see God's spirit move, to see his kingdom come? I think there's a challenge here for each of us. Allow God to penetrate your heart. Allow him to penetrate your heart. Allow him to break your heart. Allow him to move you for the things that move his own heart.
pray with desperation. And as, and as God's people, there might be times that we need to repent. Allow yourself to be broken. Sixth, don't stay in Babylon. Don't stay in Babylon. The number of Israelites that left Babylon in comparison to the numbers that left Exodus was, was pretty, uh, left Egypt, sorry, in, in Exodus was, was pretty small. This was a small but faithful remnant of people, a small but faithful remnant. Some Israelites had become really, really comfortable with their lives in Babylon. They're sitting back watching their big LCD screen TVs and enjoying the high life in Babylon and they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. It was too hard. The prospect of going back to a place that had been completely decimated and starting from scratch was not particularly appealing. And they'd become comfortable, chose not to return. But for the small, for the small remnant that did return, they saw God's faithful hand at work. Life would have been so much easier if they'd stayed in Babylon. They probably had a pretty good back in Babylon. And the opposition came. The opposition came. We'll hear, we'll hear something of that in the coming weeks. Going back to Jerusalem wasn't an easy deal. But don't stay in Babylon. God did amazing things through that small group of people that chose to pursue his vision for their community. God can do the most incredible things through small groups of people who are prepared to sacrifice all and pursue his vision. Let's be a community that's compassionately committed to pursuing God. But please don't stay in Babylon. As we wrap up, I want to ask you if you're comfortable to just close your eyes. Just for a couple of minutes, I'd just, just invite you to close your eyes. I just want you to take a few moments to just sit quietly and just take some time to reflect. We've covered lots and lots of ground this morning. I just want you to ask God to perhaps settle something of something that you've heard, something that God's Spirit might have been saying to you. Just take a moment to just allow it to settle. Maybe, that maybe there are some things in your life that are holding you in captivity. Invite God's Spirit to come and to bring you an exodus, to bring renewal and restoration. Maybe you've settled down in Babylon in places where perhaps you shouldn't be. It's not God's ideal place for you to be. 
you've become a little bit too comfortable in that place. Ask God this morning to stir your heart, to move you into the places that He wants you to be in. This morning there are areas in your life where you have a sense that maybe God is calling me into something. He's inviting me to step into something. Ask Him this morning to give you the strength and the courage to embrace everything that He has for you this morning. I want to leave you with this morning is how is God stirring my heart how is God stirring my heart this morning allow him to penetrate deeply Father God, you see the things on each of our hearts this morning and we lift each and every one of them to you in surrender. We long, we yearn for your spirit to come and to stir our hearts, to challenge us, to grow us, to restore us, to bring renewal, to bring reconciliation, to bring wholeness. Stir our hearts, Father God, this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Thanks, Mark. When you're ready, if you want to jump to your feet, we're going to continue our worship.